Mammon is the root prop of Paulinism, Paul and Barnabas's views. Where did we get the idea of multiple pastors, ministers, and other officers lording over us? Paul. Paul says, and his gifts were that some should be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, shepherds, Greek poimenos, and teachers. Ephesians 4.11. But Jesus said to the contrary, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will heed my voice. So there shall be one flock, one shepherd. Greek poimen. John 10, verse 16. Jesus uses the same Greek word for shepherd, pastor, as Paul, but the singular, while Paul uses the plural. Jesus' point is there should be no more than one. Paul's use of the plural is to convey a contradictory idea that is perfectly okay to have multiple pastors. And where do we get the idea that anyone but Jesus can serve as a leader over us too? Quote, for though you have countless teachers, pedagogus, literally, leaders in Christ, unquote. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 15. However, Jesus said, neither be called leaders, Kathagatai, literally leaders, a synonym for pedagogus. For you have one leader, the Christ, Matthew 23.10. Other translations render this as master, King James Version, or director, Young's Literal Translation. And where does the idea come from that these pastors, leaders, can not only lord it over us, but can also expect wages from us? Paul again. In 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, Paul wrote, The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. Then Paul uses an Old Testament verse about not muzzling an ox to prevent its eating while it treads out a field. And then, by unexplained logic, Paul reads it to imply that churchgoers have a duty to pay the elders for their service. 1 Timothy 5, 18. Please note, Paul will not abrogate an Old Testament law that he believes he can argue to his and his closest followers' financial advantage. Finally, in 1 Corinthians 9.14, NIV, Paul bluntly says, The Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Jesus says, cannot serve God and mammon at the same time. However, I thought Jesus said to his disciples to lay no cost on anyone they served with preaching or teaching the gospel. Without cost you have received, without cost you are to give. Matthew 10.8 This is intended to apply to all preaching and ministry works, for the words just before this were, And preach as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Jesus likewise warned in Matthew 6.24, What happens if you serve both God and money at the same time? You will love less, misery, one master in favor of the one you love more, obviously, when they conflict. The best example of this conflict-shaping doctrine is how the principle itself is ignored by pastors. To accept Jesus' principle that no money can be received as pay for preaching or ministry service here discredits Paul's contrary teaching, and hence would discredit Paul generally too.
So this creates a conflict of interest that your pastor must defend Paul and try not to understand that Jesus contradicts Paul here as well as on any other contradiction. If one issue upon which Paul stands collapses, all of Paul collapses. If Paul's validity collapses here or on any topic, your pastor loses his right to a wage. Hence, your pastor's conflict of interest weighs against understanding Jesus' plain words here or any other time they conflict with Paul. The prop of Paulinism is mammon, as Jesus warned. Upton Sinclair put it well on what happens as a result. This prominent American author of the early 20th century said, It's hard to get a man to understand a problem when his salary depends upon him not understanding the problem. So, pastors will not try to understand that Jesus discredits Paul's principles because Paul is the exclusive authority in the New Testament to justify using preaching and teaching to gain money. Your pastor cannot afford to understand Jesus' blunt words to mean what they clearly say, for your pastor's salary depends upon not understanding what Jesus says. Now, let's be clear on what Jesus did not mean when he says not to take wages to preach and teach. Jesus wasn't going so far as to say every preacher or teacher can never work for a wage for another kind of work. Rather, Jesus meant you cannot be paid money by others to preach and teach about the Lord, for this will corrupt your objectivity. We know wages can be otherwise earned for other kinds of labor because Jesus, right after saying not to make money to preach, says in the very next verse, in Matthew 10.10, that preachers must rely instead upon the law of hospitality from Leviticus 25.6 for support. What's that? You would ask for room and board of someone in the village, in return do work, and if you did a lot, you could even earn a wage. Jesus paraphrased this law as a workman is worthy of his wage. If the person there will not listen, Jesus told you to leave their home, proving Jesus saw no risk of being beholden to the host by merely receiving a wage in return for labor. You were not being paid for preaching a pet doctrine from which you gain advantage, whether you realize it or not. But Jesus sees things very differently if you get a congregation of many people who want to hear a message and you take a salary or fee to preach to them. Now you have two masters, God and the paying congregants. This is why Jesus prohibited ever taking money to preach in Matthew 10, 7-9. It creates a self-interest to confirm spiritual doctrines favored by the listeners. The two masters' warning in Matthew 6.24 explains why this is a problem. You will now be tempted to serve the paying congregants, even if you find later that the seminary they supported to train you was designed to perpetuate serious heresies against Jesus' teachings. Once you discover this is going on, you will quickly realize that if you speak the truth to the congregation about what Jesus really says, you will risk elder disapproval and the loss of mammon money. This also explains why Apostle John in 3 John 7 extolled those missionaries who went out for the name but took nothing from the Gentiles. Had they accepted money from the Gentiles, the temptation would be to please them by skewed doctrine that lowered God's standards to the Gentiles' manner of living. Jesus' truth often loses to dependency on mammon. Thus, 
What if you, as a paid pastor, find out that there is a truth from Jesus that is rejected by every present Gentile denomination in Christianity worthy of any regard? Today, every denomination rejects or ignores Jesus' teachings that a believer in me has two choices when sinning. You can go to hell whole, or instead, go to heaven maimed by some serious cutting off of the temptations causing the sin. Mark 9, verses 42 through 47, Matthew 5, verses 28 through 29, chapter 18, verses 6 through 9. A Christian's faith in Christ in these passages is not a ticket to heaven, contrary to what most believe. Nor is a Christian eternally secure merely because he or she had faith that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead, as Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 5. Contrary to what most believe, as most trust, 1 Corinthians 15 is inspired. But Jesus taught three independent times that this heaven-maimed, hell-hole doctrine, which utterly destroys the universal pet doctrines of modern congregants in faith alone and eternal security. These verses also destroy Paul's doctrines. To repeat, Jesus was addressing the onerous choice for believers in me, to remain saved, not the choice of those who are presently lost, non-believers. Every pastor knows about these contrary verses to what their congregants enjoy hearing, a reassurance they go to heaven without having to do any good deeds or obey any moral principles. The pastors know these verses destroy the congregants' pet doctrines. How could they not know about these verses from Jesus? After Luther first advanced his favored faith alone, eternal security pet theories in 1517, he realized 19 years later the problem that the heaven-maimed verses posed. Luther, a few years before he died, set course to reverse the narrowness of the faith alone doctrine because of the opposing force of these verses and a slew of other passages from Jesus. Luther with Melanchthon and Bucer, the three early leaders of the Lutheran Church, beginning in 1536, replaced faith alone with the double justification doctrine. Salvation begins by faith, but requires a secondary justification of works for final salvation. Luther's successor as head of the Lutheran Church after Luther died was Melanchthon. He succeeded in formally fixing Lutheran doctrine in 1556 to be double justification doctrine. However, the Lutheran faith alone camp after Melanchthon's death reversed it back in 1580 in the Book of Concord to strict faith alone doctrine, and hence died any courage to fix this mistake thereafter. We are all living, therefore, in that 1580 bubble of cheap grace doctrine, as Bonhoeffer calls it. The faith alone proponents defeated the correction that Luther and Melanchthon effectuated over much resistance prior to Melanchthon's death. The sola fetists of today won't teach your pastors in seminary that this ever happened, even though it is clear history. What do the sola fetists gain in 1580? They knew all the contrary verses that Melanchthon, Bucer, and Major cited, but they gave in to mammon. Luther had made them all paid ministers for almost 30 years by that point. 
They were often also paid by the prince of the community in which they preached. But double justification threatened attendance and support because now rich people, including princes, would be told to repent of sin and help the poor, not necessarily the church. And perhaps they would never come to church if they learned you taught such a negative message about works worthy of repentance, namely heaven maimed or hell whole. The same benefits of faith alone and eternal security doctrine remain today. Modern congregants of every denomination want to simply be assured that their faith alone is all that is necessary. There are no hard choices thereafter to be saved. The pastors of today do not preach repentance for salvation because they know Jesus failed to win over the greedy rich man whom Jesus told to give all of his money to the poor and come follow me. This was the work of repentance he needed due to his prior greed. The man walked away from Jesus. Matthew 19.21 We won't let that happen, faith alone pastors and congregants have said ever since. Since 1580 to nowadays, we tell that rich man to believe Jesus died for his sins and rose from the dead and he will be saved. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 10 if the rich man gives us weekly donations, he will hear regular assurances where he can sing, All is well with my soul. These words were written by Mr. Spafford, 1828-1888, through 1888, a well-off rich professional. Spafford supported Dwight Moody, who taught Spafford salvation was acquired for a song, a zero price for the believer. Song of 1873 by Horatio Spafford. As Moody Bible Institute boldly still proclaims, we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone, not dependent upon works of righteousness to attain or sustain it. But you can see Jesus teaches the opposite in Mark 9, verses 42 through 47, and again in Matthew 5, verses 28 through 29, and Matthew 18, verses 6 through 9. What are you going to do if you are a pastor today and you figure this out? You know you are not free to tell the truth, for you will be escorted to the door. You will lose the reliable lifestyle of a pastor when you have no other work skills. Your master has become mammon, whether you knew it was happening to you or not. What have all the pastors before you done since 1580 when they saw this problem? They are no more ignorant than was Luther, Melanchthon, and Bucer, who at least had some courage to fix this problem. No, all those pastors know these three passages on heaven maimed or hell whole destroy the pet doctrines of their congregants. They also know that there is a prohibition by Christ from taking money from those to whom they preach. Why did they choose not to follow Jesus' teachings? They were beholden to mammon, so they felt they had no choice but to accept Paul, who alone sanctioned them collecting monies to preach despite doing so was at odds with Christ's prohibition. But they knew it is shameful to ignore these contradictions. As a result, they also felt forced to accept dispensational doctrine, which Luther had rejected when he accepted double justification doctrine. This way, they could rationalize away the commands of Jesus directed at their present violation by themselves, trusting Paul's validity instead.
Dispensationalism was first expressly proposed by the faith alone proponent Agricola in 1500s. He argued this justified dismissing all of Jesus' hard sayings about repentance at odds with faith alone as belonging to a defunct era of law. Zwingli, 1481-1531, was overjoyed as he made the New Testament solely the epistles of Paul. See Schaff, Creeds of Christendom, Volume 1, Section 51. Agricola proclaimed that the era of law has passed away, as Paul taught, and with it, supposedly, all of Jesus' hard repentance, law-oriented teachings. In 1536, Luther rejected this and insisted Luther himself was wrong about previously saying the law was abrogated. Luther had previously relied upon Paul for this conclusion that the law was abrogated. In 1536, Luther attacked Agricola's notion that said the law is abolished. In Luther's work, The Antinomian Theses, 1536, Luther claimed anyone who says the law was abrogated is a false prophet, even if they talk a lot about grace. Luther cited Holy Scripture that affixes this condemnation on such lawless doctrine. Luther never explained how Paul did not fall under this new realization. This left the one with ears to hear to understand that Luther implied now a negative view about Paul, his former darling. The other reason pastors disregard the contradictions between Jesus and Paul and revel in Paul's contrary views is that the easy believism found in Paul has a big payoff. It allows exaggerated assurances of salvation which swells the numbers of happy congregants. This greatly lines pastors' pockets and grows their 401ks. They preach doctrines that are highly popular and enthusiastically embraced by millions. Otherwise, the pastors would have had to use Jesus' message about harsh steps of repentance for believers too, and not just the unbelievers, which might lead people to not continue attendance. The pastors know that would not work out well for their own job security. In Jesus' case, such frankness repelled the rich young man who didn't like the high personal cost of salvation Jesus asked for. See Matthew 19, verse 21. The mammon-based gospel is endless flattery. Why don't the congregants wake up to what is going on? They have enjoyed flattery for so long. Mammon is the root prop of Paulinism, Paul and Barnabas' views. Where did we get the idea of multiple pastor, past, pastors, ministers, and...